Our God is a good God and a faithful creator, as we will see in our passage today, and as we've seen in what he has done in Noel and Shane and Aubrey's life this week. Uh, very thankful, brother, for that testimony and what the Lord is doing. Very encouraged to see his name exalted in trials and in suffering. Today, this is what we're going to be talking about, is our opportunity to glorify God through suffering. Uh, the title of the message is Survive and Thrive in a World that Hates. We all understand this. Wherever we look, the enemy runs the world through fear and anger. It is the aim of Satan to cause people to hate each other or to fear each other. He wants God's image bearers to hate their fellow image bearers. He rules the world with anxiety and rage. When image bearers are angry or fearful of one another, sin dominates their life. When sin dominates their life, he is able to blind the eyes of the unbelievers and keep them from knowing the glory of the gospel. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 states, that he is the God of the world that blinds the hearts and minds of the unbelievers to cause them to not be able to see the glory of the gospel of Christ. So everywhere we look, people collect into groups and hate on each other. Isn't this true? We must understand that wickedness and hate are the instruments the enemy uses to cloud the glory of the gospel. Peter's audience was a group of people that were in the crosshairs of the world. The world was becoming well aware that Christians were growing. During this time, there were more and more people that were becoming followers of Jesus. And in that, the enemy, knowing that Christianity was growing and the followers were growing, he then set out to get the world to hate the Christians. Why were they hated? Well, ultimately because Satan was behind the scenes and he knew the believers had hope in the wicked world. So he would stir up anger and fear of the Christians for the purpose of silencing the good news. So we all must understand that this is the same world we live in today. Evil reigns through the heart of unbelievers. But how does the Lord conquer through his own in this world that brings so much suffering? How does he conquer despite these circumstances? Well, the answer is trust and love through the knowledge of the gospel. When we trust in God and we know how much God loves us in the gospel, we live lives that are totally different than the rest of the world. And then when people see us, and they understand that no matter how much they hate on us, we're still going to love them, and we're going to trust God, the gospel just comes alive, and they see it. This is what Peter is calling them to do. It's at these moments when people see us different, trusting God, not returning revile for revile, and loving them despite their anger and hostility towards us, that's when Satan's Grip is loosed in their own hearts. That's when God begins to work through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is all about. It's our call, our exhortation. The word of God calls us to survive and thrive in a world that hates us. We can do it if we keep our eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to have eyes wide open, beloved. The main reason why the world hates us is the enemy is behind every unbeliever. We understand this, right? Now, you might be here and you might not be a believer yet. You haven't trusted in Christ and you might think, well, I don't think Satan's running my life. Well, beloved, let me hear me closely. If you have anger and fear and sin in your life and he's the one that's controlling you, he's controlling you behind the scenes. He's controlling you with your sin. That's why all of us who have turned from our sin and trusted in Christ, we've been delivered and we have hope in Him. 
And we turn to him and we trust him. We must understand the enemy wants the world to consider all believers enemies. That's what they're out to do. So you might be at work and somebody bumps into you and says something disrespectful to you. And you think, well, this guy hates me. Well, I want you to stop and think for a second. No, that guy doesn't hate you. Satan hates you. And Satan is using that guy. And at that point, he is coming at you. Don't consider that guy the enemy. Realize who is the real enemy. Satan is after you. And here may be a trial. If you show grace and love to this guy that just bumped into you or disrespected you, what's going to happen? He's going to see a glimpse of the gospel. He's going to see something different. So how do we survive in a world that wants to discredit us and discredit our testimony and silence us through persecution? How do we survive? Well, today we're going to look at seven imperatives for Christians to obey in order to exalt Christ through suffering in this world. Again, I'll say it again. Seven imperatives for Christians to obey in order to exalt Christ through suffering in this world. This is the obedience of the gospel. This is what it looks like. When we trust in Christ, these commands that are listed in this passage, we will then obey. So let's look at the first command. First, do not be surprised at trials. Do not be surprised at trials. We see it in verse 12. It states, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Isn't the command clear? You see it in the middle of the verse, or right there at the beginning, after the beloved, do not be surprised. It's a command. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised when something bad happens in your life. When a trial comes into your life, don't be shocked. We should never be caught off guard when difficulty comes into our life. Now, let's be honest. How well do we do with that? The person comes in, they bump into you, and they give you a little bit of lip, and you say, what did I do? Right? That's the natural response. What did I do to you? But what have we forgotten? We've forgotten who we are. <laughs> We've forgotten where we are. We're in the world. We've forgotten who's the God of this world. We've forgotten. And so what happens? We are shocked when people mistreat us. But we can't be. The trials are actually under the providential hand of God. That these are fiery ordeals that come among you. When he says fiery ordeals, they are purifying experiences, is how you could translate that. Painful circumstances. Refining circumstances. Things that God allows the evil one to work through the unbelievers to come into your life to help you be refined. It's a fiery experience, isn't it? These trials are expected to have, however, for God, a positive effect in our life. And I want you to hear me, please hear me. When the difficulty comes into your life... You might think this is to cause me to fall away, but God sees those fiery experiences as opportunities to make you look more like Christ. We have to think totally different than the world. The world, when it's attacked or mistreated, it thinks this isn't fair, this isn't good for me, it's wrong. But we have to think what? Don't be shocked. It's coming. And this is for our good and God's glory. We have to think totally opposite. Because these tests come into our lives to show that we value Christ over all things. And complete, including how people think of us and what people do to us. These trials are expected to have a positive effect. God allowed Satan to do what he did in Job's life. Why? So that Job would then worship God. And he did. And it was all kinds of uh, things that came into his life, right? 
When we stand firm in trials, we glorify God through the trial, and that is God's goal. He wants to show off His glory. It refines our faith, and it glorifies God. Peter's already talked about this. Look back over at 1 Peter 1, 6 again. In 1 Peter 1, 6, he states, In this, in this great salvation that God is protecting us to the end, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, do you understand that when we, when we don't let these fiery experiences stifle us and make us run to a closet or make us retaliate, when we don't retaliate, when we take it and we honor God and we're humble and we trust God through the circumstance, what do we do? We set up a beautiful picture for a much greater worship experience in heaven. Listen, when, when Shane made that announcement at the beginning, he was talking about how good it was that God has been glorified through all these things. We all worshiped, didn't we? Like, wow, this is good. Way to go, God, right? Do you understand that that little glimpse of worship pales in comparison to the worship that's coming? The worship that's coming when all these trials that we've all experienced, no matter how small or large, are shown to be under the providential hand of God and He is glorified through it all. I can't wait for that worship day. How about you? That's going to be a great day. Beloved, if we are shocked by trials, we basically have forgotten. We have yet to arrive in glory. Do you hear me? In other words, if you think, why is this happening to me? We're basically saying what? I'm in heaven. (laughs) Do you understand? If bad things happen to you, guess what? It's a good reminder. You're still here in the world. You're not in heaven yet. That's coming. There's a day when people will not mistreat you. But it's heaven. Today is the day for, our pick, for us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. As he did for us, we do for him. We honor him and glorify him. If we are surprised by fiery ordeals among us, we have forgotten we need trials to glorify God and mature our faith. We need this, don't we? I'm convinced that it, God in his providence is always great that we all, in our, as we get older, our bodies shut down. <laughs> and it's usually a long process most of the time. But you know what that does? It creates tons of faith in believers as they mature and they get older. And they realize, oh, I don't control even my own body's health. No matter how much I exercise with you, Omar, I'm still going to die. I'm going to get old. And it's going to happen. Remember, God only allows these things in our life because he loves us. And he wants us to depend upon him and trust him and find our joy in him. Despite all these trials, including our bodies dying. So first, we must not be surprised at trials. Second, we must Rejoice in sharing in the sufferings of Christ. This is almost shocking, isn't it? But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Notice the shocking contrast. The but at the beginning of verse 13 is to contrast the previous, don't be surprised. In contrast to being surprised by trials, we should actually rejoice in trials. What? That's that's almost beyond our comprehension, isn't it? 
Should we rejoice? Should we find joy in going through these trials? The answer is yes. Why? Because that little phrase there that says that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Beloved, we, uh, you know, we hear this word. How many of you have heard the Greek word koinonia before? We use it all the time, right? Fellowship. <laughs> we use that word, and we use that word for things like, hey, when we get together and we hang out and it's fun, right? You know that same word is used here. It's coming together and suffering with him. Partnering with Christ in suffering. Sharing with Christ in suffering. None of us look at fellowship that way, do we? <laughs> but beloved, this is an opportunity when our lives are given a trial. When God's providence allows these things to come into our life. When Satan uses his henchmen to come at us in a direction, any way it may be. We must rejoice in partnering fellowshipping with Christ in his sufferings. You say, well, Mike, I'm not suffering much persecution. Well, wait a second. I believe the enemy is still behind even the smallest of things and trying to get us to fear, to doubt, to hide. All of these things, he's trying to get us to not look to Christ. Those are elements of suffering in your life, aren't you? fighting this daily do you struggle with feeling lonely or isolated do you struggle those are the enemy coming at you making you feel like you're all by yourself again all of these things do you think jesus felt lonely at any point oh yeah the whole world came against him at the end all of these things. But how are we supposed to respond when these things come into our life? We're literally called here by command, by exhortation, to rejoice in partnering with Christ in these sufferings. So, question. What does it mean to rejoice? It means paint a happy smile on your face and grin and bear it, right? No, beloved, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being satisfied with God content with him satisfied with the gospel of jesus christ that christ is my lord and he is all i need that is the joy of the lord partnering with him knowing that god is working all of these events and i can trust him despite these circumstances that's what rejoicing sharing in the sufferings of christ is all about find great joy is a present imperative it's not something that we just do a little bit we rejoice always as paul says we rejoice in the lord always it's sharing in the sufferings with christ not rejoicing in the pain itself look i understand this if you go through a situation and you're hurting physically hurting you don't go oh i love pain that, that that's not what we're talking about we're talking about being satisfied with Christ in the midst of it. Saying, you're enough. No matter what happens to me, if I'm alone, if my boss mistreats me, if my spouse mistreats me, if my family abandons me, all of those things, I'm satisfied with Christ alone. He's enough. So when you hit that suffering moment, that should be the question that comes across our mind. Here it is. You ready? Is Christ enough? Is he enough? When you're hurting, somebody mistreats you. Is he still enough? That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. When we are satisfied with him no matter what happens in our life. And we are, aren't we? We are satisfied with Christ because all of our sin is paid for. We're going to glory. And that no matter what happens to us now, there's a revelation of his glory to come. That we're going to exalt him. Oh, the day is coming, beloved. 
The day is coming. It's not here. And no matter who tells you that they can fix this world, they're wrong. Only Jesus can. And when he does, we are going to exalt him as the one that deserves all exaltation. All glory and honor and power and dominion deserve. He's worthy, right? Rejoice, beloved. Be satisfied with Christ and a God-glorifying experience of suffering. We can only do this if we view our circumstances through heavenly lenses. Friends, when we suffer, the natural response is to fear or get angry. That is the fleshly response. This world's response is view those who hurt us as our enemy. That's what the enemy wants. He wants you to hate people. He does. He wants you to fear people. That's what he's trying to get you to do. So you'll either isolate or you'll retaliate. That what, that's what he wants. We can't fall into his trap. We must understand heaven is coming and Christ's exaltation is coming. We can't cower in fear or retaliate in anger. But believers view painful t- attacks much differently. We view them as opportunities to share in the sufferings of Christ. So we rejoice. We must do this knowing the joy to come, as I said. Notice it says, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. This is, uh, the idea is, is that we should contemplate the glory to come. We're supposed to be thinking on heaven. Again, I said it last week, I think, or the week before. The, the saying goes, if you're too heaven, so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That's a lie. We need to be much more heavenly minded. We need to be thinking on glory to come much, 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 much more. If you're, if you're meditating on heaven and somebody comes up and bumps you or comes right up behind you in their car and starts honking at you and you're thinking about heaven and you go, oh, this poor person, they're not thinking about what I'm thinking Thinking about Jesus. He's so good. Hi, I'm sorry. I'll speed up. Let me pull over. You go ahead. (laughs) I don't need to be here quick. I'm ready for heaven. Maybe you'll come before I get back over in the fast lane. It's a total different mindset, isn't it? The heavenly mindset, the Christian mindset, thinks about eternal things. Not temporal things. Peter calls the believers to rejoice in their shared suffering with Christ with a view to the coming glory. Is this easier said than done? Well, yes, if you're walking in the flesh. But no, if you're walking in the spirit. How do I know? Well, because the very guy, Peter, who wrote this was also the same guy that what? Feared and denied Christ three times. But when he walked in the Spirit, what did he do? Acts 5.41, after being beaten. So they went out of the, on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Same guy. Different response. Right thinking. The second time. How do we rejoice in our participation with Christ's suffering? We remember the great joy to come and we recognize the blessing it is to partner with Jesus' suffering. I know this one's hard to read, but look at it. Verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. How many of you consider yourself blessed when somebody mistreats you? (laughs) Not very many of us, right? Most of us think that's a curse, right? The Bible says, isn't it amazing? As you're reading your Bibles daily, and everybody's doing that, right? You're going through the Bible, and you're thinking, wow, this is opposite. It's opposite. God calls us to think totally opposite than the world. 
We consider it a blessing, a favor from God when we are reviled for the name of Christ. How many of you consider it a blessing, favor from God? Well, why is it a blessing? Why are we blessed if somebody mistreats us, persecutes us, treats us wrong? Even a believer can do that, by the way. That happens, doesn't it? Why do we still consider this a great blessing? Why? Because we know that when these things happen, the spirit of glory and God rests upon us. This is a shocking little phrase here at the end. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This word rests upon you is the idea that God's presence is literally resting and working and delighting through you. God is working in you. At those moments when we're given this opportunity to glorify God through suffering with Christ, God's glory is literally resting upon us. In the Old Testament, LXX, this idea of rest upon, the Spirit rest upon, is talking is mentioned in Isaiah 11, where it talks about Jesus and how the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. Look, listen, listen, you've got to get this. Why do we consider ourselves blessed when we are persecuted? Because it's at that moment Christians have the Spirit of God working mightily in them. Those are the opportunities when God shows off His glory in us. And the Spirit of God reveals His wisdom and His understanding to our heart. And He counsels us like He counseled the Son of God. And he strengthens us. And he gives us a right understanding of the fear of the Lord, not a fear of man. Have you had those moments? Those moments when you go, I'm getting persecuted here. Wow, this is an opportunity. I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm actually going to love them. God, help me. I need you. I love you. And then you say, Hey, I'm sorry if I've offended you in any way. I just want you to know I do love you. I care for you. And, you're, and they're like, what? Why are you talking to me like that? I just want you to know if I've offended you in any way, I'm sorry. I just want to serve you. I just want to help you. Is there anything I can do for you? I just told you I hate you. And you walk away from that conversation and you go, Wow, God, thank you! Because that's not my natural reaction. That's the Spirit of God working in me. Have you had those moments? Do you want more of those moments? I do. I do. I just, y'all want it? You just ask for suffering beloved that's what it's all about isn't it we want our God exalted and we want him to rest upon us mightily we want to be used by God don't we so first we must not be surprised at the trials we must rejoice in suffering with Christ And third, we must do not suffer for doing unrighteousness. This is very clear. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. We were okay until that last one, right? (laughs) Suffering comes for good reasons and bad reasons, doesn't it? Peter lists the sins in descending order from murder to meddler. One who infears, interferes is the meddler, the, the one who's always in other people's business trying to control them or fix them or gossip about them. The meddler. The contrast of suffering for Christ's glory is here. Suffering for doing what is evil. How many of you? All too often the pain we experience 
The pain we experience in our lives is self-inflicted pain for our sin. Anybody? Yeah, I've got a little bit of that in my life too. If we find ourselves in trouble because we let anger control us, and we said something or did something mean to somebody, this doesn't fit suffering with Christ. <laughs> Do you understand? If you go to jail for hitting somebody because you got mad at them, that's not suffering with Christ. You're in jail. I gotta, you might have a jail ministry of repentance, but it is not going to be because you suffered with Christ in that case. Because Christ never punched the people Never was violent to the ones that were mistreating him. Again, Peter is calling us to make sure that we suffer with Christ and righteously, not unrighteously. If we find ourselves in trouble with the government because we stole something or we failed to pay our taxes, then this doesn't fit suffering with Christ. This is called consequences of sin. We find ourselves hated by others. Listen to me closely. And no one wants to be your friend because you're a gossip or you're always complaining and you're never encouraging. You know what that is? That's not you being put alone because you're a believer. That's you being left alone because you're a gossip and a meddler, an evildoer. That's called consequence for sin. Please, beloved, if you are an unkind person and you lack compassion and people don't like you, don't call that persecution when they hate you. All too often, I think sometimes, I, I, I guarantee you, those Westboro Baptist people, they go back to their church after railing on people and saying rude things to people. And then they get upset because, oh, look, these people hate us. Well, they hate you because you were mean. You didn't show the love of Christ. But then they call it from their pulpits what? Persecution. Oh, beloved, be careful. <laughs> be careful. So first, we must not be surprised at trials. Second, we must rejoice in sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And we must not suffer for doing unrighteousness. But in fact, we must suffer for Christ's sake. As a Christian... Do not be ashamed to be a Christian. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. The contrast again. In contrast to suffering for unrighteousness, suffering as a Christian is God-glorifying. Suffering because you believe in Christ and you're following Christ. I hate how unbelievers have corrupted this title of Christian though, right? Oh, I hate it. Man, it's so sad. Christians, if you say that phrase in public, I'm a Christian, it's almost like a bad word. It, it, oh, you're one of them. And it doesn't mean a follower of Christ. You're associated with anybody that was a professing Christian that was rude to the world. But this was before. <laughs> when the name Christian meant something. It meant follower of Christ. Unfortunately, the title Christian is overused, misused, and abused. In our culture, Christians are associated with unrighteous behavior. Even this week, a professing Christian, professing, keyword, professing Christian in the Roman Catholic Church were once again exposed for their debauchery. Cardinals that were right underneath the Pope that voted for their Pope, not our Pope. Get that clear. Cardinal associated with the Vatican. So in the workplace, often if we claim to be Christians, we are associated with these heretical professing Christians. And just to be fair, there was uh, we read an article, Brenda read an article this week and, and showed it to me about a mission agency that had a past and where they did some absolutely horrific things covering up child abuse. Horrible Protestants. What is this? Well, this is the Christians that we're associated with. 
But beloved, we know for a fact that true Christians are those that walk in righteousness, that confess their sins and honor the Lord, that follow Him and exalt Him. We don't look like the world, right? Why? Because we've been born again. Christ has worked in us. We know a Savior and He's risen. And we live for Him, not the world and our fleshly passions. In the early church, this shame is different for Peter. Do not be ashamed to be a Christian. In that day, it would be you were shamed with associating with Christ. After all, we associate, if we associated with Christ then, we were associating with somebody that, who had been hung up on a cross and rejected by his people. Do you understand? To associate as a Christ follower meant you could be shamed for following somebody that had been wickedly, barbarically crucified. And his own nation and his own people had rejected him. To be a Christian, you were associating with Christ and were shamed for not embracing the idolatry of the world. The day is coming, beloved. Listen to me closely. When we who follow Christ will be shamed for not embracing the idolatries of our world. If you look just like the world, then maybe you won't ever experience any of this shame. But if you are different from the world because Christ has set you free from the idolatry of the world, then you will be shamed. For example, if we don't embrace the lies of the LGBT movement, what's going to happen? We're going to be shamed. If we don't embrace the culture of death that seeks to kill babies and the elderly and those who just want to end their life, that's happening, you know, that's coming. Where if you just want to take your life, and it's okay. It's their choice. There's no value. If we don't embrace the lies of the feminist movement or all these things, we are going to be shamed. I promise you, it's coming. The world is going to seek to shame us for following Christ. What must we do? We must not fall into that trap. We must not. This will give us opportunities to suffer as Christians again. Are we ready to embrace this privilege of suffering with Christ as we follow him? This is when true identity is revealed in the world. This is when you're really shown for who you are when suffering happens. In fact, we see Christians... Glorify God as Christians. We glorify God. That's our command in verse 16. The second half. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Our responsibility is to make much of God through embracing suffering for Christ. When we exalt Christ, even when it costs us something, we glorify God. And everybody in the room, I know, that's a believer wants to glorify God. We do, don't we? In order for that to happen, God must bring us into these circumstances where we will have to choose Him over the world. These are perfect opportunities to show the world Jesus. Shame for the name of Christ, who we follow, is a great blessing. So how do we respond with joy in this suffering? Well, here's what we have to do. We have to recognize the times, include suffering. Look at 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. This should scare everybody in the room a little bit. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Wow. Why does persecution happen to genuine believers? Why does it happen? The answer, verse 17, because this is the time of God's justice, his judicial discipline for his own. 
Now, I want you to listen to me. This is very important. This is just like Hebrews chapter 11, okay, and 12. It is very much like it. I want you to listen closely. God acts first to remove all that is inconsistent with his holy name and his people while we're here. Did you hear me? I'll say it again. God acts first to remove all that is inconsistent with his holy name in his people. Right now. All the things that are happening in your life are a part of God's refining process to get us to look like we are in Christ. He wants us to be holy for I am holy. He wants us to look like Christ. Do you understand? What does that mean? He brings things in our lives so that we will look like him so that we will depend on him so that we will exalt him all the time so god allows these things and god providentially works through these things and it is called here a work of judgment it's used to explain god's chastising discipline i don't know about you guys we often see persecution or even trials as punishment only for our sin, right? Don't we think, oh, how many times have we said this? How many of times have we said this? Oh, yeah, I know I'm getting this. I blew it. Well, sometimes that's true. <laughs> but sometimes and often it's God's refining process in our life. For example, let me give you a, 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 an example. Say you... So you say you did some money, bad money management or something like this in your past, and you have this big debt problem, okay? Nobody has debt here, right? Everybody's out of debt. That's called a consequence, right, for buying things you shouldn't have bought. You understand that? So you pay it all off, and you repent, and you say, God, I was too worldly-minded. God, I'm sorry. I blew it, Okay? And I want to honor you now with my finances. It's all yours anyway. You bought me, so it's yours. And you go 10, 20 years, and everything's going great, and you lose your job. And at that point, you say, hmm, I lost my job. I was doing my job. I was honoring Jesus. I bet there's some more punishment for back then. A little bit more punishment for when I was a bad steward with my money. That doesn't work. Sometimes we're crediting things that we've already repented of and God's already disciplined for us and we think that he's constantly coming back with a hammer. Boom! Let me get you again. No, that's, you know, I think we fall into this whole karma thing. That's garbage. You don't fill up this and then fill up that and he says, oh, it's equal now. You're bad and you did so many bad things so I'm going to make it equal. But God can and does providentially allow you to lose a job so that what? You will grow in your faith and commitment and trust in him. That does happen. That's what we're talking about here. Beloved, events that happen in your life, difficulties that happen in your life, you get cancer. You have some kind of medical issue in your life. It might not be punishment. It might just want God wants you to trust him and look to him and be satisfied with him. And he's helping to grow you to look like his son. And God does this in every believer's life. Nobody escapes this. You understand that? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to suffer some discipline, some God-glorifying discipline. Peter used the hypothetical question here to give a proper perspective to our suffering. And if it begins first with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? The point being, it's kind of like a twofold thing. What do we see here? That ultimately, those that are getting disciplined by God now are what? God's own. And he's making you look more like Christ. But those that aren't getting disciplined now for all the things that they are doing, what are they going to get? Judgment to come. So what does this do for the believer that's being persecuted and somebody's mistreating them and they're, they're coming at them? What do they think? They think, okay, 
This that they're doing to me, God is using to help me look more like Christ. But they also are thinking what? Oh, those poor people that are doing this to me. Do you hear me? Oh, those poor people that are treating me bad. They're going to face a worse judgment. Their judgment is far worse than mine. So what does it do when somebody mistreats you and you know their circumstance like that? It changes the way you look at them. And now you think, wait, I'm going to respond like Christ so that they see Christ and they might come to know Christ. If we don't return revile for revile. Oh, folks, do you see this powerful little statement? These two questions are basically cause, they cause us to rethink how we view the world and those that mistreat us. As Paul and Barnabas stated in Acts 14, 22, he states, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying this, through many trials we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many trials we must enter the kingdom of God. What's that mean? That means it's going to be hard for the believer. Oh boy, your best life now. Uh Uh-uh. Don't fit, does it? No, this ain't my best life now. This is the hard life. For the unbeliever, this is their best life now. Ooh. Do you hear that? That is profound. Oh, beloved. Give me the suffering that are under the providence of God so that I can glorify Christ now so that... Others can see the glory of the gospel and can turn from their sin and trust in Christ. How many of you think of this? Are you thinking this when your spouse says something rude to you? That ain't the first thing that comes to our mind, is it? Maybe it's because we're not meditating on the scriptures near enough. Hebert, Hebert states this. It's a great quote. Listen. Clearly, the apostles of Christ had none of the starry-ended optimism of some modern Christians. Starry-ended optimism of some modern Christians? Or is that not our culture of death? Beloved, God doesn't want us to be healthy, wealthy, and comfy. God wants us to be holy. And that means pain. So at this point, there might be some unbelievers in the room, and they're saying, well, I don't want that. (laughs) Boy, where was the evangelism today, right? Well, here it is. Let me explain. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. And though it was our sin, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God for us. So that we can know him and we can enjoy him forever and ever and ever. Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. Bring the pain. Why? Because he took the pain that I caused. Finally, we must do what? We must entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Look at verse 19. Therefore... Therefore, here it is. This is probably the most important command when you face suffering. Here it is. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, God's determined will for your life to suffer, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. What do we do? What should be our response to persecution when we face it? What should be our response when we suffer? We must know our suffering is part of God's will. That is part of God's sovereign plan. It is the will of God for us. Anything that happens in our life, you understand, is under the ordained plan of God. Everything that happens to you is under the ordained plan of God. It's the will of God for you. What do we do? We entrust our souls to Him. We say, God, 
My life is not my own. You bought me. Take my life. Let it be. It's yours. We entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. Do we know that God is faithful? Yeah. We saw it with Noel, didn't we? What a faithful creator, right? We've seen it with Luke. It's been, what, five, six years ago? Had an aneurysm. And God, in his amazing grace, maybe it was four, time flies, four years ago. And his amazing grace sustained us through that. Was it a trial? Yes. Was it difficult? Yes. But God was faithful. And by the way, he would have been faithful even if he would have taken Luke home. And if he would have taken Noel home. Right? As Noel said perfectly last week before her surgery, thy will be done. That is a person entrusting their soul to a faithful creator. And do we praise Noel for that? No, we praise God for that because we know God gave the grace in order for her to do that. Beloved, let's trust God because he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. What an amazing passage, Lord. What a good God you are. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sanctifying us. Lord, we know that we're not saved by how well we do with trials, but ultimately we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But we also know, Lord, that sanctification is a process. And we know that you are working in us to make us look like we are in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be who we are in Christ. Help us, Lord, to exalt Christ in all that we do and say, even when we're mistreated. Lord, may you be glorified in our life this week. We beg you, please, God, give us opportunities to glorify you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.